In this podcast, we will look at social justice and inequality in the American dream. To a great extent, your textbook focuses heavily on the pursuit of social justice, the welfare state, and social work. It's title. And if you look at that text, uh, much of what it talks about really deals with looking at the inequities in the pursuit of the American dream. It also looks at how through our ethical responsibilities, uh, through our code of ethics, NESW, we are really asked to promote the general welfare of society from local to global levels, to facilitate informed participation by the public in shaping social policies and institutions, and to engage in, in the social and political action that seeks to ensure that all people have equal access to resources, employment, services, and opportunities they require to meet their basic human needs and to develop fully. Do we really accomplish that? Is that really a central focus of our concern? Well, one of the things that, that I want you to do is, is to really read part one of your textbook. Uh, it, it's a, an excellent uh, uh, development of, of the arguments of looking at social justice, how do we make sense of it. Uh, you have some uh, excellent uh, individuals who are writing that talk about um, social determinism, how we construct a just society, uh, looking at uh, the whole element of, of social welfare as, as a mechanism of social control. So I want you to really read that, that uh, first part, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, uh, prior to getting into the historical uh, description. As we look at issues of, of inequality in the American dream, we can begin by looking at wealth distribution and poverty. Certainly, as, as we look at, at the discrimination that takes place, certainly value systems serve to legitimate social welfare as a helping process, but can also set up expectations that can be negative and controlling. Social stratification becomes a, an issue that we look at. The position in society that one holds, education, employment, and income as indicators of that social position. Class stratification is a division of society based on economic resources, higher to lower members of society. One of the things that's very important, and the text gets at this in, in other ways, in terms of, of talking about distributive justice or injustice, is to look at wealth and income inequality. When we look at, at who owns wealth in the United States, the top 5% of our population 
has 49.7% of the nation's aggregate income. Almost 50% is held by the top 5%. The top 10% of the population has nearly 73% of the nation's aggregate income. So the lower three quintiles make 27% of the aggregate income. The lowest quintile makes only 3.6%. So one two hundredth of the population own more than one quarter of everything in the country. 25% of the population in the U.S. own nothing of any value. Wealth is negative as they owe more than they own. You may be one of those people who constitutes that 25% if you, if you added up everything you own and subtracted everything you owe. You might well uh, be in the red. Another 25% own about 5% of all assets. Most of those assets are in checking and savings that will be used for current expenses. The primary asset is the car. So you could also be in, in that. Maybe you, you come out a little bit ahead and it's principally in terms of, of your car and what that represents. So we've now dealt with 50% of the population and basically 50% only hold 5% of, of all of the assets. Another 40% own about 27% of all wealth. The primary asset is their home. And this may represent your parents where that's the primary wealth that may be worth uh, $50,000, $60,000 because it represents the equity in their house. So we come back to what we, we began with, the 10% own somewhere between 68 to 73% of the nation's wealth. And that includes 90% of corporate stocks and business assets. 10%. The likelihood, you see, that you will move from where you are today into that 10% is very unlikely. You more than likely will, will maybe move from the lower 25% to be having a negative uh, net wealth, maybe to the next 25% where you, you have some positive income, primarily in, in terms of, of uh, you know, your car, and maybe by the time you retire, you'll have moved into that next 40% where you know, you, your principal assets are, are based in your home. But the likelihood of you moving into that top 10% that, that basically owns 90% of all corporate stocks and business assets, that, that owns 68 to 73% of the aggregate wealth, you'll never achieve that. A Federal Reserve study shows that the wealthiest 1% hold 40% of the nation's wealth, that the top 10% again hold 69, 
of the wealth, leaving 31% for the bottom 90% of the population. That's hard to, to square. When you look at the grim reality of that inequity that exists of wealth distribution in this country. So class stratification becomes one of the key basis for poverty. Poverty is the result of uneven distribution based on inegalitarian economics. Prior to medieval times, social and economic conditions were thought to be the cause of poverty, and no personal blame was made in being poor. But with the end of feudalism, poverty became first immoral and then criminal. We began to classify uh, the poor as being either the worthy poor or the unworthy. Women and children are the most stigmatized. Their status, as we, we talked about value orientations, their status violates values of patriarchy, marriage and family, individualism, social Darwinism, and the Protestant work ethic due to dependency. In our society, poverty is an economic issue, a political issue, a class issue, a religious issue, a women's issue, and a social control issue. Poverty, though, is tough to define. We basically define poverty from two different perspectives. One is an absolute perspective. A poverty line is set at a level that will enable people to be physically efficient, but no more. A poverty line is based on calculations of utmost stringency. A relative approach is very different in that a person is poor when their income is substantially below that of the average income of the population. So if, if you lived in a population where everyone had incomes of a million dollars and uh, you only had an income of $100,000, within that population you would be relatively poor. So in that comparison, you're poor earning 100000 in a population where everyone's earning a million dollars. Basically, the way our government defines poverty uh, takes the absolute approach. Now that does not include the value of in-kind benefits and that's where some people have, have argued in terms of like uh, being eligible for Medicaid and having health care assistance where you may be um, you know, not in uh, poverty and you may be a working individual, a middle class individual, but you can't afford health insurance and you don't qualify for Medicaid. So what constitutes minimum need? One must be engaged in a struggle to obtain the necessities of life. It, it does not take into account that the fact that people are poor not only in terms of their own needs, but also in relationship to others who are not poor. And poverty is relative to time and place. Who we may consider to be poor in this country would be considered to be very wealthy 
in say Ethiopia or another much poorer uh, economically disadvantaged uh, country in the third world. Um, it assumes absolute efficiency in the spending of one's money. So basically in this country we, we look at relative poverty as about 44% of the median income. Uh, but as I've said, the government generally chooses to use the absolute approach in defining poverty. So we can look at, at poverty then as deprivation, insufficiency in food, housing, clothing, medical care, other items required to maintain a decent standard of living, uh, below which individuals and families uh, can be considered to be deprived. That standard's very arbitrary, and the federal government calculates the cash income required for individuals and families to satisfy minimum living needs. The poverty level was first uh, developed by the Social Security Administration in 1964. It sets absolute poverty as defined by a poverty line drawn at a given income. Um, there was a complicated way of, of coming up to calculate uh, uh, that and uh, what, what that accounted for. And it's always adjusted by the cost of, of living index. Now, if we look at federal poverty guidelines by family size, um, and we look at 2009, uh, a family of three, a mother and two kids, uh, would be poor uh, at earning $18,310. Now, uh, hot, there are higher rates for Alaska and Hawaii. So if you take $7.50 an hour and have that mother working 40 hours a week for the uh, duration of the whole year, what you'll find is that mom will still be poor. And this is what we term the working poor. Um, people who are, are working full time, but yet are living in poverty because they cannot earn enough uh, to, to not be in poverty. Uh, 35 million Americans work full time, but fail to make an adequate living. Almost one of four live in or around the edges of poverty. So it's not only the poor, but the near poor. So it, it could be that mother of, of three who you know, is earning $19,000, uh, which is just, uh, you know, 700, about $700 more than the official poverty line. She won't qualify for any benefits, but you know, she, she really is living in that area of poverty. And I think that's something that's very important to, to understand, that when we talk about people who live in poverty, it does not mean they're not working. It does not mean they're lazy. They can be working as you know, full time, but still be poor. Often these people are, are nursing home aides, poultry processors, pharmacy assistants, child care workers, 
data entry clerks, janitors, and others in the secondary and tertiary labor markets, who even despite, you know, who are just making minimum wage, will work hard, but do not make enough to, to be above poverty line. When we, we look at poverty, we see how it reflects institutional racism, sexism, ageism. When we look at 2006, of all people, in terms of percent of population, about 12.3% live below poverty level. Of that, Caucasians represented 10.3%, African Americans, 24.3%, Hispanic, 20.6%, so literally double the percent of, of, of Caucasian, of white people. Age 65 and older, 9.4%. Uh, uh, female head of households, 30.5%. And under 18, 17.4%. So we, we really look at uh, issues of, of age, race, sex, uh, with very differential uh, rates of poverty. What impacts poverty? Certainly, number one is the overall performance of the economy. And we see that more than ever before, right now. The economy, we've had a, a very severe recession. Um, millions of people are out of work, over 10% of the American population. In some states, as high as 13, 14%. And Oftentimes, these are older people, people with degrees, who have been out of work for a very long period of time. Uh, older workers who may never find employment. Um, and again, though we have this tendency to blame individuals for their circumstance. Uh, composition of household impacts poverty more single-parent households headed by women and their access to the economic system. Levels of expenditure and social programs impact poverty. And the types of programs implemented and their effectiveness of social programs such as vocational rehabilitation, health care, foster care, adoption, daycare, housing programs, urban renewal. Healthcare again becomes so important because we know so many, a rising number of people are, are going into bankruptcy due to healthcare costs. If a free market economy then cannot provide jobs that keep everyone above the poverty line, certain groups of individuals will then be locked out of the opportunity structure that enables them to be self-sufficient. As I've said, a single parent and two children who earns a minimum wage of $7.50 hour, uh, an hour and works 40 hours per week for 52 weeks would only earn $15,600. That's roughly $3,000 under where the poverty line is. So um, you, you, you can begin to see what's the hope? Almost that individual may find they're better off not working, staying at home, taking care of their children. 
um, because no matter what they do, they cannot get ahead. Well, there are also other views of why people are poor. Certainly, poverty is culture, a way of life. Poverty includes not only low income, but attitudes of hopelessness, apathy, alienation, and lack of self-respect. This is perhaps one of the most controversial views and is certainly debated. Poverty is structure. Poverty is fostered by institutional and structural discrimination. And poverty is exploitation by ruling class. Uh, Herbert Gans, uh, Piven and Cloward, all talked about this in terms of how more government assistance goes to middle and upper income groups. We have this upside down welfare state. The lower class get welfare, but middle and upper classes get deductions, subsidies, government insurance, um, uh, tax breaks. Herbert Gans, um, G-A-N-S, talks about is poverty functional? Do we really try to get rid of poverty? Because he said poverty serves the function. One, it assures that the dirty work gets done. Somebody will be there who will be willing to do those low paid jobs. And it really serves to subsidize in low wages. Uh, It leads to the rise of dollar stores, the purchase of goods of low quality that otherwise would never be sold. Uh, damaged goods, goods that are out of date, um, all of the things that we find sold in dollar stores. Uh, there wouldn't be a market for that if, if we didn't have poor people. It also helps us feel better about ourselves. As a child, did your mother ever uh, kind of point somebody out, you know, you'd better watch out, you'd better work hard, you'd better do better in school because if you don't, you will be like that person. And they'll point out some person who's homeless or poor. That also serves as an example of deviants that are frowned upon by the majority, as well as then gives jobs for occupations dealing with the poor. Well, what are the the approaches to combating poverty? Well, one, There can be a curative approach, helping the poor to become self-supporting through changes in personal lives and their environment. The alleviative approach, exemplified by public assistance programs. Preventive approach, exemplified by social insurance programs. Now, remember we've talked about our two perspectives of providing social welfare services, the residual and institutional. We largely have a residual focus of combating poverty in which we will give assistance, but we serve to make it as unpleasant as possible. We discourage applicants by making payments too low for anyone to really want it. Uh, When people say, you know, they get stares at the grocery store, because uh, they're on welfare, when they're scrutinized for what they're buying, that's good. We want you to feel bad about being on welfare. That's the way we've set the system up. It's mean-tested, case-by-case determination of eligibility and benefit level. Benefits are viewed as charity. 
They're paid from general tax funds. So these become then some of the philosophies, programs certainly for combating our, our general welfare programs, our TANF, temporary aid to needy families, supplemental security income, Medicaid, food stamps, women, infant uh, care or the WIC program, school lunch programs, and then housing assistance, public housing, Section 8. So all of these become means of, of then dealing with poverty. But you'll have some assignments I'll ask you to look at, at Herbert Gantz of Piven and Cloward. Read the text. Look at the accompanying uh, PowerPoint that goes with this and really begin to uh, grapple with that um, the American dream only exists for some, but not for all.